So good to see all of you tonight. Appreciate very, very much your presence. As I said last night, all of you that are members, we are grateful for you being here and appreciated the good meal we had tonight. I've always been partial to barbecue. It's too long of a story for me to tell you why, but I appreciate it. And that's one of my favorite things, and I appreciate all that was done, the fixings that were there with that. Appreciate what you did in providing that food. But better than that, even if we hadn't had anything to eat, was getting to spend a little time together and visit. And the fellowship is always as good, if not better, than the food. And I enjoy that. I enjoy being with my brethren, my spiritual family, and visiting and talking together as we were able to do a little bit tonight. Those of you that are visiting, we appreciate very, very much your being here, the efforts you've put forth to come out. Some of you have come a little further than others, but we appreciate every effort that is made for you to be present. And uh, the encouragement that you give this meeting, we are indeed grateful. And hope maybe sometime along the way we can repay that. And uh, I know you'll have meetings from, from now till about October. There will probably be one about every night somewhere. And so we appreciate the support you've lent to this meeting. As someone said, love to worship God. What better place could you think of than to be tonight than right here in order to do that? Now you're going to have to listen faster than you've ever listened before tonight because we've got a lot of ground to cover. I want us to think together tonight about the Christian philosophy of life. What is your philosophy of life? Have you ever thought about that? Whether you have thought about it in a formal way or not, you and I have a philosophy of life. Everybody has a philosophy of life. There are a number of definitions that you might find concerning the, the word philosophy, but one definition is that it is a set of ideas about how to do something or how to live. And everybody has a philosophy about how to do something or how to live. If not everyone, a lot of people in this assembly tonight have a philosophy about preaching. How to do it, how long it ought to last, the tone it ought to be done in. Everybody has a philosophy about preaching. I have one. Mine and yours may not be the same, but we have a philosophy. You probably have a philosophy about the practice of medicine. You get ready to go to the doctor, you've got an idea about how you ought to do things. A mechanic, you have a philosophy of life when it comes to how he ought to work on that automobile and what he ought to charge. You've got a philosophy. We all do. What's the Christian philosophy of life? There is a difference. Everybody, as I said, has a philosophy. The materialist has a philosophy of life as represented by that rich, foolish farmer in Luke 12 and verse 19 when he had said, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger, and then I'll say to my soul, Soul, take thine ease. Thou hast much goods laid up for many years. His philosophy was that life was fulfilled in the accumulation and the filling up of his barns. That's the materialistic viewpoint of the world today, isn't it? As the old bumper sticker says, he who dies with the most toys wins. That's a materialistic philosophy of life. But not only that, there is the hedonistic philosophy of life, the playboy philosophy. It's reflected in the statement you'll find written by Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 13 when he says there were those saying, meats for the belly and the belly for meats. 
But he goes on to say, the body's not for fornication. Evidently, they were arguing in that day and time that the sexual desire was one given to us by God, and it was like the desire of hunger or for food. We fulfill that whenever and wherever we want to. And so it's all right to fulfill this other one any way we want to. But Paul says, that's not the case. Our bodies were not created for that. We're not to allow our appetites, our desires to have that kind of control over us. But that is the hedonistic philosophy, isn't it? If it feels good, do it. There is also the atheistic philosophy of life. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There's no hereafter. Just today is all you need to be worried about. Life in this world. And if you want a good commentary on the futility and the folly of that kind of philosophy, read the book of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon shows that lifestyle to be a vanity of vanities, life under the sun. But that's the atheistic philosophy, isn't it? And then there is that egotistic philosophy that says, as reflected by Pharaoh, when Moses came and said, the Lord said, let my people go, and he said, Who's the Lord that I should obey His voice? That egotistical philosophy of life. I'm at the center of the universe. Everything and everybody revolves around me. But the Christian's philosophy is not like any of those or any other philosophy of this world. 1 Peter chapter 1, 15 and 16, Peter said, That as He which hath called you is holy... So be ye holy in all manner of conversation. For it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy, saith the Lord. We all know and have heard many, many lessons about the idea of being holy. A holy people. People who are set apart from the world and set apart for the service and the glory and the honor of God. But how is that holiness reflected and manifested in our life? Friends, it begins with our philosophy of life. We don't adopt the materialistic philosophy, the hedonistic philosophy, the atheistic, the egotistic, or any other philosophy of this world for life. We have a philosophy of life. We have a set of ideas about how things ought to be done and how life ought to be lived that's based upon the Word of God. That philosophy is expressed to us by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 in verse 7 when he said, We walk by faith and not by sight. It is found in the Old Testament with the prophet Habakkuk in chapter 2 and verse 4 when the Lord said through and to that prophet, The just shall live by faith. And Habakkuk is quoted by Paul in Romans 1.17. In Galatians 3 and verse 11. And in the Hebrews epistle by that writer in Hebrews 10 and verse 28. That is our philosophy of life. We live by faith. What I want to try to do tonight is set before you the idea that living by faith is not some nebulous idea out here that floats around and we, we quote it and we say that's what we're doing, but it is a philosophy that gets into my shoes and goes with me everywhere I go. It affects the decisions that I make. Now, to live by faith means that we have as a foundation of that living the Word of God because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. 
So we're going to take some things that are common to man, borrowing that phrase out of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, some things that all of the world has to deal with, just like we do. And by applying the philosophy of life, of living by faith, to see how it makes a difference in our life. I made a list. Your list might be a little different from mine. I've added to it. I'm not going to try to cover all of it tonight, but I do want to try to impress upon us how practical and how powerful living by faith is, what it means to do that, and how it works itself out in life. The Bible says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And so our living is reflected by our thinking, a reflection of our thinking. What's your philosophy of life? Do you live by faith? What about when it comes to the matter of religion? Religion is a common thing. Every culture ever known to man practiced some kind of a religion. People were found to be worshipers of something. Acts 17:22, Paul went into Mars Hill, Athens, and went on to Mars Hill and spoke. And he said there in verse 22, the latter part of it, I perceive that you are too, the King James says, superstitious. Other translations say religious. Think about that for a moment. Can you be too religious? Here were people who were religious, but their religion was not based upon the knowledge of God. They had all of these idols that they had put up to the various gods they knew about. Unless they have missed one and offend that God, they had that idol with the inscription on it to the unknown God. And the God that they did not know was the God that the Apostle Paul preached to them on that occasion. But you see, they were religious. James 1, 26 and 27 says that if any man among you seems to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, that man's religion is vain. But pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. You remember in 2 Kings chapter 17, whenever the northern kingdom of Israel, also sometimes called Samaria, whenever they were carried away into captivity by the Assyrians because of their rebellion against God and their refusal to repent, the Assyrians displaced many of those Israelites out of their land and put other strangers of other nations they had conquered on that land to live there and take care of it. But they did not know anything about God. And there were lions that were coming among them and slaying them. And so they sent word back to the king of Assyria that the God of that land was, was punishing them because they didn't know anything about him. So they sent a priest that had been taken into captivity down there. Now remember that Jeroboam had made priest of the lowest of the people. This was not a Levitical priest. So this priest that went back over to Israel to teach them about how to worship God was not going to teach them the truth about how to worship God. But here's the point out of all of this. They were interested in a religion that would merely appease God. That's a philosophy of the world. The philosophy of the Christian that lives by faith is not a philosophy of life that is merely interested in using religion to appease God. To check the appropriate box. To meet the qualification to miss hell. True religion 
is about a relationship. The word religion itself has roots in the old Latin word that means to tie or bind again. Ligion, from which we get our word ligament. To tie or to bind again. Religion is about the provisions that God has made whereby man, though having gone into sin, can come back and be tied again to God. Paul would say it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.19, to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. And then he went on to say he's committed unto us the word of reconciliation. But you see, God is endeavoring to reconcile the world to himself. Then you come over to the last verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and he says, I will be unto you a father and you will be my sons and my daughters. You see, the philosophy of a Christian living by faith is that religion becomes the means of being a child of God. Of loving God and being loved and reaping the benefits of that. It's not just something to appease him. It's not just something that's relegated to two or three or four hours a week. Any more than when a man and a woman marry. That they're interested in something that's only going to be two or three or four hours a week. When they bring children into this world just to have them for two or three or four hours a week. We're talking about relationships. That's a philosophy of life. And I ask you tonight, is that your philosophy? Are you living by faith when it comes to the matter of religion? Think of how many people are just using religion. It's not from the heart. And it's not something wherein they really desire a deep and a lasting fellowship and relationship with God. They're just trying to miss hell. Living by faith. In regard to time. Time is the stuff of which life is made. I spoke last night a little bit about being accountable. Did you realize, and I'm sure you've thought about it, that when we stand before God, really what we're going to be doing is we're going to give an account to Him of how we used our time. Before we moved to McMinnville, we were living in North Alabama. Our children were obviously smaller. One of the members of that congregation with whom I became good friends and we confided in one another some from time to time. He had already raised two daughters. They were in their early 20s. And I was talking on one occasion about concerns I had about rearing my children and he gave me one piece of advice that I found to be extremely helpful. He said, make them account for their time. When they come home and you've asked them where they've been, if there's an hour or two gap, make them give an account. What did you do in that hour? In reality, that's what God is going to do with us. We're going to give an account of our time. Time is not something then that living by faith, we simply take it and use it on ourselves, for ourselves, by ourselves. Time is something for which we're accountable to God. Psalms 90 and verse 12 says, So then teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. There is a recognition when we live by faith of how uncertain time is and how fleeting and brief 
our time and life in this world is. In Ephesians 5.16, Paul said, Redeeming the time because the days are evil. In 2 Corinthians 4.18, he said, We look not at those things that are seen, but the things that are not seen, because the things that are seen are temporal. Think temporary. And yet how easy it is in the ongoing activities of a day and after a day and after a day and then weeks after weeks to sort of fall into a pattern of life where we, unlike Paul says here, we become preoccupied with the things we can see and less and less occupied with the things we cannot see. The things that we cannot see, he says, that are eternal. Time. How do we use our time? Time for those who live by faith with that philosophy of life is used to develop a character that will enable us to be able to live so as to please God and meet with His approval and be prepared for eternity. I know that you know it well in Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the, of the ten virgins, five wise and five foolish. Why were the five wise called wise? Because while the bridegroom tarried, and then when the announcement came, the bridegroom cometh, they had prepared for that by having taken sufficient oil for their lamps. But the five foolish were unprepared. They did not use their time wisely, did they? I have no idea what they were occupied with, but they were not prepared. Think of how many people there are today that are living as though they will never die. And they're not prepared to meet God. How many people arose off of their pillow this morning and the next pillow their head occupies will be the one in their casket. And they're not prepared. We take time for granted like we do many other things. James gave this Warning and rebuke in James 4, 4, verses 13 and following when he said, Go to now, you that say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a city and tarry there for a year and buy and sell and get gain, whereas you don't know what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. What you ought to say is, If the Lord will, we will do this or that. Living by faith, we recognize the uncertainty of life and the brevity of it, the brevity of time. And we factor the Lord into our daily plans and our daily life. How are you using your time? Show me what a person uses their time to do and I'll show you what's important to them. May I make a plea with you? Carve out some time serve God, not just on Sundays and Wednesdays. Private Bible study time, private prayer time. If you are accustomed on a Friday night to going out to eat, why not wait 30 minutes and go by the nursing home and visit someone, then go eat. Or go and eat, and after you've finished, on the way home, go by the hospital, see somebody, Sister Graves, someone else that might be there. 
don't have to stay very long. In some cases, it's best not to stay very long. But simply pop your head in and let them know, I'm thinking about you. I care about you. What can I do for you? That will mean the world to them. And those of you that have been there know it means a lot to you. How do you use your time? And I'll tell you something. It will mean more to them than when your preacher comes because they expect him to come. It's not that they don't appreciate it, but they expect him to come. How do we use our time, folks? All the things we could be doing our song. You remember in Matthew chapter 25, that great judgment scene, verses 31 to 46? Why did the Lord say those on the right were welcomed into heaven? Because they had given him food. They had given him a drink. They had given him clothes. They had given him shelter. They had come to him and visited him when he was in prison or sick. When did they do that to the Lord, they wanted to know. And he said, when you did it unto one of these, the least of my brethren. Carve out some time. I'll tell you this quickly and then move on. I learned that lesson the hard way. I was preaching there in North Alabama. Someone on a Sunday morning asked me about a particular member that it was, had been sick. And I gave the standard answer that many times we give. I'm not sure exactly how they're doing. I haven't had time to check on them. And I went home, reflected over that a little bit, and was ashamed. You see, I had played golf that week. That was time I could have used to go check on that member. We've always got time to do the things we want to do, don't we? And some of us were observing earlier, I think on Sunday, isn't it interesting how we may not have time to go and visit somebody when they're sick, but we'll find time to go to their funeral or go see their body when they've died. And it means a whole lot more to them. We'll go when they're living. Living by faith, folks. Our philosophy of life then dictates and determines how we use our time. And it's not that we can't take time for recreation, for rest and relaxation, but it means that we have a philosophy of life that says, I am accountable for every second of every minute of every day, and I want to make sure that I give appropriate time to the things that are important. That's living by faith. What about bread? And I mean by that the necessities of life. Luke 12 and verse 15, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. Jesus said man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. John 6:27, labor not for that meat that perisheth, but that for that that endureth unto life everlasting. He certainly wasn't telling us not to work. But he was telling us that we've got to realize there is something greater and more important than physical bread, than physical meat. There is that which is of a spiritual nature that has to be attended to, as we just mentioned briefly in regard to time. Matthew 6.11, we pray, give us this day our daily bread. 
And so we realize that while material things are important because we have bodies of flesh and blood and there are physical needs that we have, such as food and drink and clothing and shelter, those are things that we need. But we also have a soul. How much time do we spend on our soul in comparison to our bodies? How much time do we spend at the table feeding our bodies in comparison to the time we spend sitting with our Bibles, reading them and studying them, meditating therein? Ah, the material things of life are important. But that's what the philosophy of this world makes most important, isn't it? Those material things to the neglect of the spiritual. Living by faith, we recognize the value of our soul. What is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will he give in exchange for his soul? Exodus 16, you have the occasion where the Israelites had come out of Egyptian bondage. They have passed through the Red Sea and seen that great victory over the Pharaoh and his army. Lo and behold, it's not any time until they're saying, Oh, that we were back in Egypt when we had plenty of bread to eat. We've come out here to perish. They were not thinking about the spiritual. They were thinking about the material, the physical. They were not living by faith, were they? And that's why in Hebrews chapter 3 he says they could not go into the land of Canaan, the land of rest, because of their unbelief. What about money? That's tied in with it, isn't it? What if you had the history of a dollar bill in your pocket? If you've got a dollar bill in your pocket, what's it been used for? What's it been done? Did it buy a lottery ticket? Was it used to help a widow or an orphan? What about our money? Money is important because of what we can do with it. But the value in money is how we use it. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, Paul said, Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into this world. We'll take nothing out. Therefore, having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. But he that will be rich falls into temptation and a snare. Many hurtful lusts that drown men in destruction and perdition. Which while some have coveted, coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Then he says to Timothy, Thou, O man of God, flee these things. Down in verse 17 he would say to those who are rich, Charge them that are rich. It's not wrong to be rich. But charge them that are rich that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God that giveth us richly all things to enjoy. That they be full of good works and ready to distribute and ready to, to communicate laying up in store a good foundation against that day to come. You see, how do we use it? Do we use it to give, to help the work of the church? While we're talking about that, let's tie this in with work. Living by faith now we're talking about. Work is a good thing. The Lord gave Adam and Eve responsibility in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it, Genesis 2.15. And I'm sure you are aware, as I am, of how pitiful a work ethic we have, by and large, in our country today. We have so many things that make life easier that people don't want to work. 
period and are depending on others to take care of them. I didn't ask Tony or the secretary about benevolent calls that you get here, but I know the kind we get at Rome. I know the kind we used to get when I was at Mount Leo of people who are needing help, and some are legitimate to be sure. But it is remarkable how many people call that are unemployed and don't intend to be employed but want people to take care of them. Living by faith, we work. Because Paul said to those at Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, if any won't work, don't let him eat. But why do we work? Have you ever thought about that? Do we work to make a name for ourselves? Do we work to climb the ladder of success? Do we work so we can hoard up money? Do we work so that we can accumulate more and more possessions and buy a bigger house and another car and a better car and the latest gadget that comes along? Why do we work? We work so we can have to give. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8, Paul said that if a man does not provide for his own, He has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. So we work so we can take care of our families. We work so we can give to those who have legitimate needs. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor with his hands that he may have to give to him that needeth. We work to make a living. But a part of that making a living is to give. To give back to the church. To give on other occasions and good causes that have need. To take care of our families. See, there are workaholics. They work for the sake of work. There are preachers. Tony and I know some. Other preachers in this assembly tonight probably have known or do know some. I remember several years ago a fellow with whom I became a little bit acquainted when I was first trying to preach and I'm still trying. He was looking to move from the congregation that he was at. But the only congregations he was looking at were those that were larger than where he was and paid more than where he was. He was looking to move up, not to serve. Why do we work, folks? We work because we live by faith and we want to be the kind of employees or employers, as the case may be, that can bring honor and glory to God. That's living by faith. Doesn't everybody talk? Some talk too much, but everybody talks, don't they? How does the world use its speech? How does the Christian use his or hers? Paul said in Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but such as is good for edifying that it may minister grace to the hearers. Colossians 4 and verse 6, Let your speech be always with grace seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer every man. Matthew 12, Jesus said, O generation of vipers, how can you being good, how can you being evil rather, speak good things? For a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, but an evil man out of an evil treasure evil things. I say unto you that every word that men speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Speech. All of us would readily recognize there's no place 
for gutter language on the lips of a child of God. But you know, we have a way, society has a way of softening that. We would never say the word damn in cursing someone or expressing surprise, but we'll say dang or darn. There's no difference, folks. We would never think of taking God's name in vain, but we'll say gah or golly or gosh. We would never use the Lord's name in vain, but we'll say law or lawsy, or as I heard some of my relatives say, lawsy mercy. You're saying the Lord's name just the same. It doesn't carry the sharp sting that it does when we hear it come off the lips of others when they just go right out and say it. But when we use that slang terminology, we're cursing just the same. We're using profane language just the same. There should be no corrupt communication proceed out of our mouth. We ought not take the Lord's name and use it in such vain, profane ways. And if we're in the habit of doing it, We ought to repent and strive to break that habit. And those habits will be hard to break, but you can. Just as some broke the habit of using that profanity in cursing, you can break the habit of using those slangs. Gossip, deceit, half-truths. There's no place for that on the lips of a child of God. Our speech when we live by faith will be yea, yea, and nay, nay. Not that that's all we say. Not that we cannot take an oath as it were, for for example, in a courtroom. But that our word is our bond. And our speech is clean and pure. Let me very quickly then mention just one or two more and the lesson will be yours. Burdens are common to life. Living by faith, how do I think about my burdens? I don't get up in the morning and relish the idea of getting bad news. You don't either. I don't get up in the morning and try to figure out some way to get hurt physically, emotionally, or any other way. But burdens are the common part of life, aren't they? 1 Corinthians 10, 13, There's no temptation that has taken you but such as is common to man. They're all around us. And some of our burdens come because we take up the cross and follow Christ. Daily. That's the added burden of being a child of God that we willingly and gladly take. But how do we view those? James said in James 1 and 2, Count it all joy when you fall into divers' trials. When my father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, mother was taking care of him at home and took care of him at home till he died at home in November of 2008. I told Mother, I said, Mother, here is an excellent opportunity for you to demonstrate to people that know about this situation the value of your faith. You can go around and moan and groan and complain about how hard it is and how bad it is and what you're having to endure and put up with, and she no doubt had to put up with a lot there every day taking care of him and every night. But here's a way for you to show what faith does for you. Whether you're dealing with that or cancer or a sudden death or a protracted dying, here's an opportunity, folks, for us to show people in the world this is what faith in God does for us. It enables us to live in a way 
where we are not soured and bitter on life because we know it's just for a little while. And Paul had that thorn in the flesh that he'd asked the Lord three times to remove, and the Lord finally said, My grace is sufficient for thee, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He said that I will glory rather in my infirmities that the power of Christ can rest upon me. I'll take pleasure in infirmities, in necessities, in reproaches, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. My burdens help me to realize how frail I am and how much I need God. And though I don't relish the idea of suffering, it gives me an opportunity to glorify God. That's living by faith. We're going to have our burdens. And use those burdens like the Apostle Paul and others to show people the value of that faith and to deepen our love and dependence upon God. If I had time tonight, we would talk about marriage. We would talk about children. Let me briefly mention this. All of you parents with young people, it is so important to encourage those children to get a good secular education. We know the value of that. Maybe to be involved in some kind of recreation that they find enjoyable. But may I encourage you, bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, Ephesians 6.4. Bring your boys up to want to be deacons and elders and preachers. Bring your daughters up to be teachers, workers in the church. Maybe to find a husband who's a preacher or will be. Who she'll encourage to be a deacon and or an elder. Oh, it's great and wonderful to rear our children to be successful in life. But the greatest success they'll ever have is serving the Lord. A couple of weeks ago, I went with my daughter. I think I may have told you, so I'm not going to burden you with it again, but just briefly to mention it. When she got the Teacher of the Year Award for her school, it means more to me that she be a faithful mother and child of God. Raise them up to be that. All of that other will take care of itself if their greatest and highest ambition is to serve the Lord. Their profession will take care of itself. Their success in life will take care of itself. They'll be a success. Teach them that. And what about death? As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. For by one man came sin into the world, and sin by death. And so death passed upon all men, for that all sin, Romans 5.12. But living by faith, we view death differently, don't we? I heard a voice from heaven say unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. When a faithful child of God dies, yes, we miss them. We mourn in part because of our loss. Ah, but there is a, a comfort. And they're at rest. They fought the fight. They won that victory through and in Jesus Christ. And a lot of our weeping is for ourselves. We sorrow, but 
not as others that have no hope. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 The psalmist said, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. The word precious means scarce or rare and hence of great value. It's precious. The vast majority of people that leave this world leave it unprepared. We live by faith. And so our view of life is different, which makes our view of death different. What's your philosophy of life? Are you living by faith? You know your heart deep down inside. Are you living by faith? Does it impact the decisions that you make day by day about your speech, how you work, what you do with your money, your possessions? What about your marriage, your family? What about your service to the Lord? Are we living by faith? The Christian life is the greatest life there is to live. People in the world can't believe that. The materialist, the hedonist, the atheist, the egotist, they can't believe that if you give of yourself to serve God, you're not missing out on something. You are. You're missing out on hell. Christianity is the greatest life there is to live, folks, because it never ends. It continues on in heaven when life is done. Are you living by faith? If you're not, you need to repent and adopt that philosophy of life tonight and begin to so do. Use your time in a way that will please God and take you to heaven. If you want us to pray with you and pray for you about that matter, let it be known. If you're not yet a child of God, you're not living by faith. Won't you repent, confess Christ and your faith in Him, and be baptized for the remission of your sins? That's living by faith because it's doing what God said to do by faith. You've been patient and good listeners tonight, and I thank you for that. But please, if you're subject to the invitation tonight, please, please come while together we stand and while we sing.